Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> We're looking at the, the ideal of priesthood. What would that look like? What does it look like? What is it that God has actually established for the, uh, the, the people of Israel and now the church uh, in order for them to uh, understand <clears throat> what God is doing on their behalf? And again, <clears throat> reminder, this is where the writer wanted to go back in chapter 5. He said, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but, but you have a, a slow-acting mind. You, you have a lazy, you, lazy thinking, lazy ears. You're slothful in your spirits. And so he gives them a warning in chapter 6, um, and then ultimately brings them back at the end of chapter 6 again to talk to them. Uh, last verse, chapter 6. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, now I want to talk to you about him. I want to explain who he is. I want to explain why he is important and why he's significant and why Jesus now in his priesthood is not patterned after Aaron, but it's patterned after Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, being made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. We're going to look at all, first of all, his person here. His person. His name, Melchizedek. Quite a name. You don't see it in the top ten names of boys being born today. Melchizedek, and rightly so. Because when you break down his name, it means king of righteousness. That's the... Uh, the individual here now who has come out to meet Abraham. And not only do we have his name as king of righteousness, but we have his genealogy stated here, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. In other words, we have no record of when he was born. We have no record of when he died. Uh, just all of a sudden, he appears on the scene. He's in Genesis chapter 14. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, and that's it until you get to the book of Hebrews. That's all we have about him. In Genesis 14, in fact, we looked at it uh, Wednesday night here a little bit, when, when Abraham went and, and, and conquered, uh, <clears throat> well, we called him King Cheddar, and, and, the, and, and the five... Uh, the coalition, coalition of kings that came down and, and took Lot, destroyed Sodom, or uh, captured Sodom, Gomorrah, took all those people captive. Abraham and his own particular coalition and his own 318 trained individuals went and recaptured all of those people and brought them back. And in Genesis chapter 14, that's our introduction here to Melchizedek. I'm going to look at that here in just a minute. But what we do know about him, whose father and mother are not written in genealogies, they there is no record of him. And so that is, again, significant for us as the writer here is pointing him out for these particular people, just simply symbolizing a priesthood here that is timeless. He was made to be like. The implication here is that in the resemblance to Christ, in any way it rests upon, has his history is reported here in the Scripture. What do we know about his priesthood? His priesthood is universal. 
It is universal. He is the priest of the Most High God, mentioned here in chapter, or in verse 1. The priest of the Most High God. Universal. Not the, the priest to the Jews, or his own particular people. He's just a priest of the Most High God. It was a royal type priesthood. It is a king priest, because he was also the king of Salem, so he's a king of peace. It's also a righteous, he's a king of righteousness, so his priesthood is righteous. His priesthood is peaceful because he's a king of peace. And his priesthood is unending, and that has to do with his genealogy. And so when you begin to look at Melchizedek, he becomes the perfect pattern here, or the perfect typology for who Jesus himself is to become. Now, it would be very incorrect to say that Christ was made like Melchizedek. But Melchizedek was indeed made like the Lord Jesus Christ. As the historical person Melchizedek, even though we have no record of his birth and genealogy, Jesus and his humanity had a birth, had a death. But yet, he, like the priesthood, there is no beginning and there is no end. And so when you look at his person, we're looking at his name. We're looking at the, uh, the fact that he has no genealogy. When we think about his position, and again, we're looking at the titles that were given to him. Not only is he the, the priest, but he's also the king of peace. Now, the word peace is where we, the king of Salem, where we get the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not specifically spoken, but most people would, would agree that that's what it is. But again, we're not specifically told. Um, and the writer makes no special point about that particular thing. And so when you look at his title, that's who he is. But when we look at his greatness, a couple of things about him we need to identify. First of all, he's the one, he received tithes from Abraham. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was, unto whom the, patri the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of the brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. What's he saying? We have, as Abraham came back, Melchizedek came out to meet him, and Abraham voluntarily, spontaneously, spontaneously just gave him a tenth of the spoils. They were just recognized as the, as the proper offering at that particular time. Long before the law was ever given where God required such from different offerings, just voluntarily, spontaneously, he just gave this money here to the king of Melchizedek, and therefore proving Melchizedek here is really greater than Abraham. And even through Abraham, the writer here makes a point to say, now in the, in the law you have the tribe of Levi. Levi were the priests. The priests were those who received the tithes. And so they were uh, of, a, of a higher position there within the nation and within the tribes themselves as the priests, as the tribe of the priesthood. But yet here we have Levi in the loins of Abraham, and so you have the, the seminal headship, which is used. We have seminal headship even in the New Testament, where we are uh, 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 sinners after Adam. Adam sinned on our behalf. It's called seminal headship. Abraham, 
here gave tithes, as it were, Levi is providing tithes, even Levi who once re will receive those, but yet now he is the one who is providing those as well. And so, how great is Melchizedek? He received tithes. Also, how great is Melchizedek? He is the one who blessed Abraham. He's the one who blessed Abraham. Because the scripture is very clear. It's the greater that blesses the lesser. And what's significant about that? Abraham was the one that God gave the promise to, God gave the, the covenant to ultimately, that all the world would be blessed through you. That we will, man will not be able to count your descendants. They will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. There was no greater than Abraham. We are children of Abraham. He's the father of the faith. But yet, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, again proving that Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham, who we would recognize as perhaps one of the greatest within the economy of God, as we have it identified here in the scriptures. So Abraham received the promise that all will be blessed through him, and now Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham. And so we have his person, we have his position. Verse 11, we have his perfection. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek, and not be called after the order of Aaron. And again, please be reminded that the people who are reading this, the primary recipient of this, it's a letter to the Hebrews. It's a letter to Jews who were uh, wrapped up in the Levitical system. They were wrapped up in the synagogue, the temple. They were wrapped up in the whole sacrificial system. That's all they knew. They, it was ingrained within them. They, they knew what it was to, uh, to have to come to the and make the proper sacrifices in every way. But yeah, they have, now we have this, this new priest, Melchizedek. They understood the priesthood of Aaron, but how in the world does Melchizedek fit into this? And that's what the writer is trying to present to them and trying to teach them. The old Levitical priesthood is, going to be, is being set aside and has been set aside. If perfection actually came from there, there wouldn't be the need of another priesthood after Melchizedek. Verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So what's the writer doing? He's introducing to these people a new and a better hope that uh, comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. These people, that's what their experience was. The writer here is trying to convince them, no, in Jesus everything is better. And so, therefore, you don't have to worry about uh, uh, the, the, the old things. Jesus is better. You don't have to get sucked into getting back into that system simply because it may have been more comfortable to you, more familiar to you. You go back to your old family relationships, your old business relationships. You know, you have identified with Jesus now. Stick with it. This is why you need to stick with it because what you have in Jesus is far better. And we're going to have that word here even in just a couple minutes. So in verse 11, it gives them the reasoning that assumes that the priesthood needed to be perfect. If perfection came, we wanted it, 
Perfection should be in the priesthood, but it wasn't provided there within the Levitical priesthood. The old Jewish system of worship was powerless, destined for replacement. It was clear that perfection could not come through the Levitical system. Verse 12 says then that the law and the Levitical system went together. You know, the priesthood was to the law what a foundation is to a building. And so if a new priesthood is in order, that also tells us that there needs to be a change to the old legal superstructure. And so now he's going to eventually he's going to introduce us to a better covenant. And then in chapter 8 next week, we're going to spend our time talking about that. Verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Again, if Jesus served as a high priest in his life, he could not serve as a priest. If Jesus wanted that job, he couldn't do it because he was the tribe of Judah. No one of the tribe of Judah could serve as a priest. If Jesus was going to be a priest, the whole system has to be changed. The whole system of priesthood, the whole law has to be changed. And so therefore, if Jesus serves as a high priest, two things have to stand out. His priesthood is going to be of a different order. It's going to be heavenly and not earthly. It's going to be heavenly and not earthly. And it's going to be spiritual and not material. And so if Jesus is going to be the high priest, it had to... Uh, uh, it meant the abolition of the Old Testament law. It meant a whole better covenant was going to come this way. And so that means in verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness there is. In other words, it was set aside. The Old Testament was set aside. The, old, the uh the law was set aside, therefore the priesthood was set aside as well. Why? Because perfection. Perfection had to be part of the priesthood. It could not come in through the uh, ministry of Aaron, through the Levitical system. And so therefore a new priesthood had to be established. Verse 20, we begin to look at his permanence. The permanence of this king, or this priesthood here. Now we're going to go back and pick up a little bit more here. We just recognize that none of the priests at that particular time was enduring. Now verse 15, And yet it is far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testified, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing of a better hope did, by which we draw an eye unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made a priest, for those priests were made without an oath. Those priests, talking about the Old Testament, those in the, in the Levitical system. But this, Jesus, with an oath, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the old system, all those priests died. In fact, we are told, I've seen numbers of 83 and 84, uh, of, of the high priests that actually existed there throughout the Old Testament. 
they, they performed until they died and then another one came into the system. But this, this new priesthood now under the order of Melchizedek, this new priesthood through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, this new priesthood owes its existence to the fact that now we have one who is, verse 16, after the power of an endless life. That the power of a life that cannot be destroyed is what he's saying. And so he's talking about the permanence of this. We don't, we don't have to have a succession of these priests. We have one. For he has the power of this endless life. And that's his theme throughout this whole chapter, really. If you go back to or verses 1, 2, and 3, and, and if you uh, eliminate all the descriptive phrases which are listed in there, the sentence basically is, for this Melchizedek, the end of verse 3, abideth the priest continually. There's your subject verb. Everything else, they're just modifiers, and they're just descriptive phrases of who Melchizedek is. And so he begins this chapter by saying Melchizedek is for, he's a priest forever. Verse 8, again it testifies, uh, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Verse 16, as we talked about, the power of an indestructible life. Verse 24, uh, because he continueth ever, there's an unchangeable priesthood. Verse 25, it also says he always lives. Verse 28, again we're told, it's a son who's been made perfect forever. Then we have uh, verses 21, 22, verse 17. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ is perpetual. It is final. It is supported here by heaven's unchanging oath. We saw that in chapter 6 where is significant of an oath by, by God by two immutable things first of all his promise and then his oath God has made an oath and God does not change his order and so this new order of priesthood then is irrevocable it is better and the better ultimately is going to mean there's a new covenant coming better means there's a, a new relationship between God and man and God has doubly certified this with his oath. And furthermore, verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a guarantee of a better testament. So his performance is for eternity. He will always have the position of high priest. Lastly, look at his preeminence then. Verse 26. We understand that the law could not provide a remedy for the consequences of Adam's fall. The law could only point out sin. The, only, the, the law could only condemn sin. The law could only talk to us about death. The law could never clean or cleanse the conscience. But the better covenant indeed can. So in verse 25 we're told that Jesus provided for us a better way. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by sin, by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That's something new. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He will always be able to function as your high priest. 
Always. There will never be a change in that position. He will always be the one interceding for us before the Father. And it says there, He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save absolutely. He's able to save for all time. It just includes the idea of completeness. That includes the idea of totality. And one writer puts it this way, For all eternity, He remains the introducer of men to God. Verse 26, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He's perfect in his relationship before God. He's perfect in his relationship before other men. He has moral perfection. God has qualified him to become the priest before him. Verse 27, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. The power of his life, his sacrificial death, provides far more for man than any animal sacrifice ever could. For the law maketh men high priests, which men have in, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated for heaven. What's the ideal priesthood like, look like? It's a priesthood that's based on personal greatness. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Not legal requirements. It's based on personal greatness. It's a priesthood that brings new hope. It's a priesthood that, that, that opens wide the door of access to God the Father. Thirdly, it's a priesthood that never changes. It is permanent. Christ is always in God's presence to intercede. doesn't have to wait for that one special occasion each year on the Day of Atonement to enter into the Holy of Holies. He's always able to enter in. He is always there in His presence. Fourthly, it's a priesthood that is altogether pure. Not like the Aaronic priesthood who also had to provide sacrifices for themselves. It's a priesthood of personal involvement and sacrifice, number five, because he has offered himself. In classical Greeks, in a certain city-state, there were two brothers. They were as different as night and day. Amenius was the hero of the city. He led them to victory in battle. He had defended them at the jeopardy of his own life. He was the hero. His brother Oculus was a ne'er-do-well, the black sheep. His double dealing and his treacherous ways finally caught up with him and he was brought before a trial of his citizens. The evidence against him was overwhelming. It was undisputed. There was no doubt he was guilty of treason. He should be banished from the presence of the rest of the citizens and his family forever. But yet he could have a defense. He had chosen his brother, Amenius, for his, as his advocate. 
As the prosecution rested its case, it was time for Minius to defend his wicked brother. Every eye was upon him as he took his place on the stage. They wondered what in the world he could say in his defense. In fact, he said nothing at all. As the citizens who witnessed this waited, Amenius withdrew his right arm from his cloak and slowly raised his scarred stuff for all to see, reminding them of the price he had paid in defense of their freedom. He returned to his seat. The citizens were stunned. They were stirred. They acquitted his brother. In our lives, we have a high priest before the Heavenly Father. A priest, the scripture has told us, we've already read, who's able to identify all the feelings of our own iniquities. He makes intercession for us. Always. We need him. We must have him. I hope you have that relationship with him. One that you can count on. One that you can depend upon, recognizing me. He will always be there. There will never be a change. He has attained perfection as a high priest. And even as we began our study, if you remember in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, where we said he was the divine architect, we also said he was the divine advocate who when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, because he has an inheritance more excellent than they. You have a divine advocate. Go to him often. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies upon us this day. We thank you that we have a Savior in the heaven who intercedes on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ, not only who died on the cross as our Savior, but now is our High Priest before the Father in Heaven. Oh, dear God, how we are praying that we would make use of Him. Thank You that He, he knows us. He, he understands us. But Lord, we, we might as well tell Him the innermost parts of who we are because He already knows it. And yet He loves us. And he cares for us. And so Lord, I pray, as these Hebrews now understand, we need no other. That Jesus is sufficient. That Jesus is better. And Lord, I pray that we will never lose sight of that. So to your honor and glory, we commit the study of the scriptures today. Pray, O oh God, the application of that to our hearts and lives. We will go to him. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.